chapter 7 this morning, Luke chapter 7, our study in the Gospel of Luke, our pattern here is to go verse by verse through the Bible, and we are currently involved in a study of the Gospel of Luke, and we'll be looking at Luke 7, 11 through 18 today, Luke chapter 7, 11 through 17 actually. I want to read our story and then we'll see what's going on here. Luke chapter 7 and verse 11. Soon afterward, he went to a town called Nain, and his disciples and a great crowd went with him. As he drew near to the gate of the town, behold, a man who had died was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. And a considerable crowd from this town was with her. And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said to her, Do not weep. Then he came up and touched the bier, and the bearer stood still. And he said, Young man, I say to you, arise. And the dead man sat up and began to speak. And Jesus gave him to his mother. Fear seized them all, and they glorified God, saying, A great prophet has arisen among us, and God has visited his people. And this report about him spread through the whole of Judea and all the surrounding country. If we were going to go family feud style this morning, and I ask you, what's the worst problem in the world? I think you know by my title what I would probably answer. But I do wonder what people would say. What's the worst problem in the world? I could think of some answers like people driving slow in the left lane. Those of us that traveled over the holidays, we feel that deeply in our souls. Or you might take it more seriously, thinking of things like recession or even more seriously, bad officiating in big games, things like that. Or maybe people putting onions in all their recipes. That's a terrible problem. I'm going to get some disagreement on that one, I'm sure. But if we really push to the bottom, I think we would say something like sickness and ultimately death is the worst problem that we really face as humans, isn't it? We're all headed there. It's something we don't really want to think about all the time, and rightfully so. I understand that. And we're on the new frontier in some scientific breakthroughs right now. Some of you are keeping up with some of this with regenerative medicine and things like CRISPR-Cas9, which is gene editing technology. Maybe another day in an equipping hour, we'll dive a little bit deeper into some of the updates on this. And the dream is to stop and even reverse the aging process which we have all sorts of things that we do right now to try to stop aging and stop wrinkles and all those things. It's long been the dream of thinkers and philosophers to somehow figure out a way to cheat death. Just south of here, the Spanish explorers, what were they in pursuit of? The Fountain of Youth. Remember when we first moved here, we were talking about the Fountain of Youth. One of my kids asked me, well, did they find it? I said, well, they're not around anymore, so I guess not. I guess they didn't. In mythology, you have people like Sisyphus who tried to cheat death. It didn't go well for him. Some of you maybe more recently have watched the Avatar movie where they are pursuing these, the whale-like creatures, which I'm sure my daughter will correct my pronunciation later, the toucan, these whale-like creatures that have a jelly-ish sort of substance in their brains. And the sky people, that's us, the earthlings, come to their planet to take this substance that stops aging in its tracks and the whole movie is sort of built around this whole like industry of getting this material that stops aging 
we've long been fascinated by how do we stop this problem that we know we all have, and that's we're getting older and we're going to die. That's just the grim reality and the sure reality. Christians, though, we have a little bit of a different relationship and understanding of death. And I would even dare say it's a little bit complicated sometimes to think about this. We talked about this a lot a few years ago, if you were with us in our Ecclesiastes studies. Solomon, if you just read through Ecclesiastes, which I would encourage you to do, probably once a year, it'd just be good to just read Ecclesiastes again. And just over and over and over again, Solomon won't let you forget that life is temporary. Time is ticking. It's a good thing for us to stop and remember here as we, many of us, are taking inventory of the last year and considering what do we want next year to look like? What do we want the next five years to look like? It's a good exercise for us to go through and to think through those things. But for Christians, we look at this idea of mortality, and it's complicated, isn't it? Because you have different statements like this, and I'm going to argue they're not contradictory, but it's almost just looking at the same thing from different vantage points. You have something like, you could say that death is gain. Paul said this in Galatians 2.20, to live is Christ and to die is gain. Well, if I ask you to complete that sentence, most of us would not say death is, to die is, most of us would say that's loss, it's sad, it's heartbreak, right? But in this context, what he's talking about is the life that he enjoys in Christ. This is only a prelude of what we have yet to come. It's good news. It's gain. Related, death is also a door. It's the door to being with Christ in a more full and true way. 2 Corinthians 5, 7. At the end of 2 Corinthians 4 and then into 5, he kind of wrestles through this like living and dying and what does it mean if I take off this, what he calls the earthly tent, maybe our earth suits, if you will. What does it mean? Well, it would be better to be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So to be here is to be in some real way distant from our Savior. And so naturally then to die is to be closer to our Savior. This is good news. But we also have verses like this. Death is seen as an enemy in 1 Corinthians 15, which is all about a defense of the resurrection, right? If Christ is not raised, then you can't be raised. You're still in your sins. The absolute necessity of the resurrection, if there is no resurrection of Christ, then there really is no gospel um, at all. We sing about it. We talk about it. We speak about this all the time. But in that context, what we see is that Death is viewed as an enemy. It's viewed as an enemy whose days are numbered. It's the last enemy that's going to be destroyed, 1 Corinthians 15, 26. But then we have another verse here that death is sad. It's sad. Look at what Paul said in Philippians 2. Now, this is the same guy that said to be absent from the body is to be at home with the Lord, to live as Christ and to die as gain. Same guy said this. Indeed, he, speaking of his friend, Epaphroditus, was ill And he was near to death. So he's got a friend and he's very sick. And he said, but God had mercy on him and not only on him, but on me also. So it was God's mercy that he lived and he didn't die lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. He said, it would have been so heartbreaking for me to lose my friend and God was merciful and kept him alive for a while. Epaphroditus isn't around anymore. He's been dead quite a number of years. We don't know much about Epaphroditus, but he's mortal. And he's died now. 
So, like I said, we have a little bit of a strange relationship with death. And I think understanding and knowing that people die, it reminds us that the world that we live in, though it's still a beautiful place, though it is still a reflection of God's glory, it's a stage on which God showcases his glory. It's also a place that has a virus. It's broken. And sickness and death is a symptom of that. Today, what we see in the story we just read is one of these moments of the inbreaking of the kingdom where Jesus reverses the curse and reverses death for this individual. It is an amazing story. It's pretty straightforward. So you could just read it. We just did. And it's pretty straightforward. Jesus is walking along. There's a funeral procession going out. They're carrying out this young man who has died. Jesus walks up stops the funeral procession and says, hey man, get up. And the funeral ends and he goes back to his mom. So it's a pretty easy story in that sense, but there's also some incredibly profound things going on. So what I want to do is try to set this a little bit in contrast to the last story that we saw. And just to remind you, or if you weren't here with us, this was a story of Jesus healing the centurion's servant. And this man had sent word to Jesus, I, my, my servant is very sick, I care for him deeply, would you, would you be willing to do something? Would you be willing to help? And he healed him of his sickness. In contrast to that, we have this story. So there's a lot of comparison points, very similar. There's a healing that takes place, but there's also quite a bit of contrast going on too. Whenever we study the Bible, and I know many of us are embarking on a new journey, maybe, uh, maybe for the... I don't know how many years you've given it a run to read the Bible in a year. Some of you are giving that a run again. Um, it's been a week. Are we, how are we doing? We'll talk later. <clears throat> I understand. It's, uh, the, the daily, the daily gets, gets hard. Um, you don't have to do that to be a follower of Jesus. But if you are, uh, it's great. Um, it's great to, uh, to get the Bible in our minds again. But I think one of the helpful things about taking big sections of Scripture is it sort of those of us that traveled over the holidays, I'm an overview map person. So I, I'm constantly, when I'm following the GPS, which most of us are doing now as we drive to wherever it is, some of you are like, just tell me what I need to do in the next 50 yards, and I really don't care. Um, you don't know if you're going north, south, east, west, and it doesn't matter. You just kind of, I'll just do what she tells me to do, uh, this GPS. Others of us, I want to know where I am, which direction am I facing. So I'm an overview map person. I like to see the big picture. And so I think thinking that way in the scripture helps us a lot. The, the gospel writers, they arranged their, their literature. They, they have, uh, John tells us at the end of his gospel, if everything that Jesus said and did were contained, were the, the whole books of all the world wouldn't contain it. So they had a lot of options. So why do they pick it this way? And why do they arrange the stories in this way? And I think what Luke is wanting us to see here is a contrast of sorts between the last story, healing of the centurion, and then this story, uh, this story here. So what we have, we have a contrast, the healing of the centurion. He's a Roman, most likely Roman. He's powerful. He demonstrates his faith and humility. He's obviously a male. His servant is sick. And he does this, Jesus performs this miracle from a distance. He doesn't even go and touch the man that he heals. Contrast with this story, obviously she's a woman. She's a widow which means she's in a vulnerable position. We'll talk more about that. Presumably, she's Jewish. 
She did not request a miracle. In fact, we're never told that she knew even that Jesus was there or what was going on. She's not featured in the story. The compassion of Christ is really what's featured in this story. And her son, in this case, is not simply very sick, but he is dead. And so we'll see that Jesus, how Jesus responds to this situation. So three points that we'll walk through today. One is the problem of death, the ministry of Christ, and the responses of the people. The problem of death. We've already talked about this in a general way. Death is a problem introduced in Genesis 3. After the fall, after sin, there's a separation from God. Death is a consequence then of humans' rebellion against God. But let's look at it in a more specific way here. The problem of death. Now, this woman was a widow. Notice what it says. Soon afterward, he went to a town called Nain and his disciples and a great crowd went with him. As he drew near to the gate of the town, behold, a man who had died was being carried out. The only son of his mother, and she was a widow, and a considerable crowd from the town was with her. So we're told a couple of times there's a crowd, and they're going to feature later in the story because we're going to see the reaction of the crowd. And we learn that this woman is a widow. That means death has struck close to her at least twice. One, her husband has died, being that she is a widow. And then now her only son has died. This is very significant. So in the ancient world, she wouldn't just go get a job at Home Depot. Didn't work that way. She would rely really on the generosity of the community around her. And widows, orphans, foreigners, they were particularly vulnerable. And they had needs. They needed people to care for them and to take care of them. That's why in the Old Testament, and then we get a hint of this also in James 1 in the New Testament and other places as well, as Paul said, his desire was to care for the poor and the vulnerable. We have instructions. One instruction, I'll read this one for you. This is Deuteronomy 24, 19. This is instructions to Israel. So Deuteronomy, it's a couple of speeches given by Moses to the people. You're just about to go into the land. How are you supposed to operate? How are you supposed to run things in, in this land, this new place, this new nation that's being established? Here was part of the law. When you reap your harvest in the field and forget a sheaf in the field, in the field, that's not sheep, sheaf, like a bundle of wheat, grain, if you forget one, what should you do? Well, you don't maximize your profit and say, you, you leave it. You shall not go back to get it. It shall be for, there's a group of people, the sojourner, so those who are traveling through, it's free for them to take. The fatherless, that is orphans. And the widow, those who are vulnerable. That the Lord, your God, may bless you in all the work of your hands. It's just one example you're supposed to, and they were also told, you're supposed to leave the edges of your field. You're not supposed to harvest um, up to the edge. Some, uh, some outdoorsmen do that out in the Midwest. You'll leave the edges of the field. They leave it for wildlife. Um, if we can leave a little strip for wildlife, how much more important should we leave it for humans that have needs? And this was the point. So the problem of death, death is struck and it struck twice and it's put this lady in a terrible position. And that leads us to the ministry of Christ. The ministry of Christ, three words that we'll consider here. Look at what Jesus does. And when the Lord saw her, that's Jesus, he had compassion on her and said to her, do not weep. Then he came up 
and touched the bier, and the bearer stood still, and he said, young man, I say to you, arise. Compassion. Jesus has compassion. It notes that for us. There's a few different places where this word's used. We'll look at a couple of others. He had compassion on her and told her, don't cry. We're going to fix this problem of death. I love what one commentator said, Daryl Bach said about this. Jesus did more than we are able to do, but the way he acted is important. (laughs) So you might read this and go, well, I can't raise people from the dead, so I guess I don't have to be like Jesus here. It's like, well, get the heart of what Jesus was going for here, though. He's ministering and serving those who had needs. He showed compassion. A couple of other examples of Jesus showing compassion. These are interesting. If you want to take these down, look them up later. I'll read a couple of portions of this. And there's others as well. But a few different times we get glimpses into the Savior and how he operated. And what you'll see is that Jesus responds as... Uh, you guys, anybody still have the old school thermometers with the mercury in it? Everybody's doing digital now, right? Who's got, who's got, you, you got some of those? Yeah, kids, don't, don't play with that mercury. It's really bad for you. Not that I would know anything about that from my childhood. Don't play with that stuff. So the, the mercury, it would react to the temperature. It rises or it falls depending on the temperature, right? That's how the thermometer works. Jesus, you can almost picture Jesus is like this. And his reaction, whether you get his grace or whether you get his rebuke, is directly proportional to your pride and your recognition of your need for Christ. And so with somebody like this, a widow who's mourning her son, it grabs the heart of Christ. He shows compassion and he ministers to her. And we'll see this in a couple other places as well. But he keeps locking up with the Pharisees and the religious leaders Remember, he said, it's not the well that need a physician. And so we see this contrast, and other writers later in the New Testament will pick up on this. Peter Peter says, God's opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. James says the same thing, both trained by Jesus. So Jesus showing compassion. We have him, his heart is going out to this individual, showing compassion in this story. A couple of other stories that are really interesting in Matthew 14, I'll read this, 14, 13. Now, when Jesus heard this, now what is the this? We've just been told that he just found out that John the Baptist, his relative, perhaps his cousin, has been killed. He was beheaded. You remember that story? He's been killed. When he heard this, how do you react when you hear terrible news? You just, typically, most of us want to withdraw with people close to us, right? Right? Um, Jesus in his humanity is grieving. It says, when he heard this, he withdrew from there to a boat to a desolate place by himself. He's just trying to get away. But when the crowds heard it, they followed him on foot from the towns. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd and he had compassion on them and healed their sick. So you can see what's happening here. Jesus gets on a boat. He goes off to a desolate place. And after he gets off the boat, guess who's there? Everybody. Oh, boy. Great. Many of our moms with toddlers, you love your toddlers so very dearly. And sometimes you just need a minute. Um, We we, we understand that. You just, can I just, can I just have a minute? Jesus is, is just trying to break free from the crowd for a moment in the wake of learning that his relative John has been killed 
but he can't resist the crowd. They're there. They want to they have him minister to them. He had compassion on them, and he healed their sick. Amazing story. Mark 6, something very similar here. Verse 31, it says, And he said to them, Come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. That's uh, one of my favorite verses. Come away to a desolate place and rest a while. It's okay to rest a while. God bless Sunday afternoons, right, for many of us. Rest for a little while. For many were coming and going, and it says this, verse 31, many were coming and going. They had no leisure even to eat. They couldn't even, they couldn't even get a bite in uh, because the crowds are just pressing in. And they went away in the boat to a desolate place by themselves. So they try again. We're going to go on a boat, go get away from the crowds for a little bit. Now, many saw them going and recognized them, and they ran there on foot. So they're, they're kind of motoring across. It's not motoring, rowing across, sailing, as it were. They're moving across the water. The crowd sees where they're going and like, oh, we know where they're going, and they run. They run on the shore, and then, again, they show up. It's like, oh, great, you're all here again. Like, excellent. They saw them going. They recognized them. They ran there on foot from all the towns, and they got ahead of them. Now, Jesus could say, forget all you people. I'm done. I'm going to take a nap. I'll be with you later. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd and he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. Again, Jesus is showing compassion, showing his kindness to these people. Mark 10, this is another one. And this is a a little bit different tone to this one. This is the story of the rich young ruler, this man that runs up to Jesus, kneels before him and says, good teacher, what do I have to do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus gives him the true story, the true message. He knows this man and he knows that he doesn't actually want to follow Jesus. And he says this in verse 21, and Jesus looking at him, loved him, had compassion on him. And he did this, one thing you lack, go, Sell all that you have and give it to the poor, and then you have treasure in heaven, and then come and follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Jesus loved him so much that he couldn't sell him short on the gospel story, the gospel message. He knew his heart. He knew he wasn't ready to follow Jesus. What if the story had gone something like this? Jesus looked at him, and he loved him so much that he didn't want to hurt his feelings and tell him something he didn't agree with. You know, being compassionate sometimes means saying something hard. Those aren't, those aren't mutually exclusive. Jesus cared for people so much that he wouldn't let them believe a false story about what it means to be his follower. He has compassion. He's unlike any person that we've ever met. Compassion sometimes means saying hard things. Now, don't, don't take what I'm saying here and say, hey, pastor today said that I can be a jerk. Um, I, can just, I can just go around offending people uh, just because I like to offend people. Because Jesus said hard things, I like saying hard things. So no, 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 that's not at all what's going on. But we should know that we, we don't want to cause unnecessary division. We don't want to be jerks to people. But sometimes in compassion, in love, we need to say something hard. It happens. It's necessary. So the ministry of Christ, we see his compassion. Next, we see the purity of Christ. The purity of Christ, this is interesting. So the purity laws keep popping up in Luke. We saw them early on in Luke. And 
because this is kind of foreign to us and maybe it's been a little while since we've talked about some of this, we need to just remember categories here. So to be impure does not necessarily mean that you are in sin, all right? So those are different categories. You could become impure by your sin, but that doesn't necessarily mean, impure doesn't necessarily mean that you've sinned. There were other ways of becoming impure as well. Having a baby made a woman impure. Doesn't mean she did anything wrong, kind of a necessary process, but it does mean that she is impure for a time. Discharge of various bodily fluids. You can read all about this in Leviticus. And there's quite a a lot of detail about all of this in Leviticus. Death and blood also caused one to be impure. And this is the verse that I think is important. Whoever touches the dead body of any person shall be unclean seven days. So again, it doesn't mean you've done anything wrong. Somebody had to deal with the dead body, the one who had died. But it did mean that they were made unclean. So people would generally not touch death and blood if they didn't have to. But here's Jesus. The funeral procession's going on, and he walks straight up to the beer. Different spelling, not that kind of beer. Walks straight up, and it would be carried something like this. The dead person would be put on this beer, and they would be wrapped, and they would be carried out. Typically, they think that uh, most scholars think that burial happened right away, um, especially in the warmer uh, climates and warmer times of the year. So they're carrying this, this one out, and Jesus walks straight up, and he stops the funeral procession. Now, something interesting happens here. Normally, if you touched something impure, that impurity transferred back to you and made you unclean. Total opposite happens in Jesus, and you're going to see this again in, our, in chapter 8. Jesus' purity now transfers over to the one that he touches. We'll see this again with the woman who's healed of the discharge of blood, we're told in the next chapter. This happens over and over again in the Gospels. Jesus moves towards this. He's reversing this whole process of purity and impurity. So interesting. This is what Christ did. And lastly, we see the authority of Jesus. It's an obvious point, but I don't want to run past it too quickly. Jesus has authority even over death and life. Only God has this kind of authority. We've seen him assert his authority over things like demons and sickness, the Sabbath, the religious leaders. But death, you can't can't be responsible. You can't have authority over death. Notice what happens here as well. Look at verse 15. So in verse 14, Jesus walks up, he tells the young man, arise, similar to the Lazarus story. And the dead man sat up and began to speak, and Jesus gave him to his mother. The man sat up and began to speak. Now, this is, uh, it's important for us to understand. This man is dead, like dead, dead, not mostly dead, 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 fully, truly all the way dead. It's not like he's going to take some time to recover and regain his strength. He's dead. And then immediately, he sits up and begins to talk. Now, I absolutely firmly believe in the authority and the sufficiency of Scripture. I believe God has given us everything that we need for life and godliness, and I believe we have exactly what God wants us to have, his message for humanity. That said... There's a couple of places where I would love another verse or two, I have to admit. What did he say? (laughs) 
hey, mom, um, did I miss anything? Like, hey, what's up? Uh, I'm feeling better, a lot better. What, what was that conversation like? But I think the emphasis that Luke wants us to, to get here is he was dead and now he's not like, he wasn't just really sick and now he's sort of getting better and regaining his strength. You know what it's like if you've been really sick and you start to get better. It's not, it's not like a light switch though. It takes a while to get better, to recover. Not this guy. He went from dead to sitting up, talking, having a full conversation. It's amazing what Jesus did. There's so much comfort in all of this. There's a certain comfort in knowing that our Savior holds our lives in his hands. You can't leave planet Earth unless God punches your ticket. Hebrews 9.27, it's appointed for man once to die. There's a lot going on in Hebrews 9, but I'm always encouraged by that. John Patton took this to heart. He was a missionary to the New Hebrides. Uh, in an island, unreached island people group in the 1800s. And they were known for their cannibalism, which makes them sort of inhospitable to gospel ministry for, from the perspective of most people. Our missionaries face many challenges, as we've heard of, but to my understanding, everybody's trying to eat people um, there. So John Patton said, I'm going to go there and I'm going to take the gospel. And he he's, he's, has an amazing story. But this one line, he says, I realized that I was immortal until my master's work with me was done. I'm immortal. You can't take me out of this world. God holds the keys to life and death. And what we see here is that this, this boy, his time wasn't up yet. God hadn't punched his ticket. He had more for him to do, the compassion for his mom and also for the boy himself. It's encouraging. It's encouraging for all of us as we inevitably, undoubtedly, Many of us, all of us probably, have lost people at some point in your life. And just to know that it wasn't without God's plan, it wasn't an accident. God's not wringing his hands thinking, I can't believe that happened. Lastly, the response of the people is similar to what you would imagine. There's a mix of fear, understandable. They glorified God. They said there's a great prophet, and then they spread the word. That's the fourfold response here. There's a greater prophet. There were two stories in the Old Testament that were very similar to what Jesus just did. One was with Elijah and the next Elisha. Elijah was the first great prophet. Elisha was his, uh, was his mentee and ultimate successor. They both had a very similar story. Elijah raised a widow's son from the dead in 1 Kings. And then Elisha raised the Shunammite woman's son from the dead in 2 Kings. So very similar. This is why the people say, hey, we've, we know about stories like this. This didn't happen all the time. We know about stories like this. And they say there's a great prophet here. What they may not fully understand at this point is that there's a greater prophet that's among them. He's not just a prophet. He's the ultimate great prophet. A few things that we can take with us today as we move into our time of communion. One, I think it's a good time, beginning of the year, for us to all commit ourselves, perhaps for the first time, perhaps it's time for you to reassess your commitment to Christ. Commit to following this greater prophet to Christ. What does it mean to be a follower of Jesus? If that step has never been taken in your life, we would love to have conversation with you about what that means 
right after the service. Next, we can imitate Christ's compassion to others. No, we may not be able to raise people from the dead like Christ did, but we can find those who are vulnerable, who need help, who are hurting amongst us, even in our own congregation, to look for those who could use a helping hand, look for those who need ministry, follow the example of Christ and his compassion to others. And then lastly, and this will lead us into our time of communion today, to remember Christ's compassion to us. You might think, well, that's in a long time ago in a galaxy far away. It's really not, though. Christ is compassionate to us as well. Author of Hebrews says this, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. We come today to celebrate this Christ, this one who has compassion, who has understanding, who took on humanity and understands our weaknesses. Today we get to celebrate communion. We do this on the first Sunday of each month, and here at Sunrise we practice uh, open communion. That means if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, we invite you to participate in communion with us today if you would like. If not, you're welcome to just sit and watch. If you don't really know exactly what it means to be a follower of Jesus, we would ask you just sit and watch and observe, and we would love to have a conversation with you right after this. We don't believe that there's anything particularly special about these elements. It's just bread and juice. It's a reminder. We take a, what's called a memorial view of the communion elements, meaning that we believe that we are here to remember what Christ has done. And this is a visible way to remind us of the gospel. Let me pray for us, and I'll invite our servers and our musicians to come.